With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, we are joined by one of the nation's foremost historians, Joseph Ellis. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to this week's sponsors, Blinkist and HelloFresh in the show notes. We thank you for supporting the sponsors. It really makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Boy, James, we got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, And I think at the top of the list was the Tuesday huge victory in California and the California recall for Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, I think you and I agree California is a deep blue state, but there's import and a message from that decisive outcome. One is that the right-wing attack on Newsom, which focused on his pretty good and tough rules on COVID, it backfired. Californians recognized the damage and they rejected this nonsense. I hope you hear that in Florida, uh, which has a much worse record than California on COVID. The other, James, I think is that Newsom pulled away when his campaign didn't just focus on what he had done, but they made the election a choice between what they're doing and Trump and Trumpism. That's a lesson for 2022. Terry McAuliffe is doing that in Virginia. There may be issues that you can run on in Congress that may pass an infrastructure, child tax credit, more support for daycare and early education, but Democrats have to make it a choice and talk about Trump and Trumpism. Uh, If they get a good economy, if COVID goes back and they do that effectively, they got a shot to to defy the conventional wisdom next year. Yeah. a couple of things. You know, analysis is, is going to come as we go forward, but early analysis seems to think this electorate looks more like 2018 and 2014. Yep. And, you know, one in every eight Americans live in California. There probably are, are, are more Republicans in California than there are in any state maybe other than Texas. I mean, there's certainly there are a lot more Democrats, but there are, you know, millions and millions of Republicans. So you have something to learn there. It's... Uh, you know, the turnout in Virginia primary was, was pretty high. This turnout seems to have been pretty high. We're not seeing the early warning signs for a year in which the incumbent party is going to get crushed. Now, history is, is definitely against us. I, I think the Virginia governor's race is going to be more significant than the California governor's race. But also, it, it's the press's favorite narrative, Democrats in disarray, that this can't help themselves. And you know, as Ron Brownstein pointed out and other people, the Democrats are going to run on Trump <laughs> and they're going to run against Florida. I, I, you can see that coming. They, 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 they're going to put them on. They're going to put Trump and they're going to put Florida on the ballot in Virginia. You already know that's coming. We know it's coming <clears throat> in Virginia and it ought to happen 
in uh, almost every House and Senate race next year, too. You know, off your elections, you're right about the, you know, the traditional history, the conventional wisdom today. There were two exceptions. One was 1998, when the Democrats, in essence, put the sex-obsessed Ken Starr and Newt Gingrich on the ballot, creating a choice. And the other was four years later, when Republicans did the same thing with the war on terrorism. You can't just try to defend what you think is a very good and admirable record, uh, particularly against the attack dogs you're going to face. You have to go on the offensive. Correct. And, and what no one is looking for is a three-point plan or a five-point plan. Right. All right. And that's just the state of, 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 of politics. But, you know, this election turned out to be as much of a census as it was an election. And that seems to be what's going on. And if the Virginia election turns into a census, then we'll do well. Well, you also hope that um, Democrats get the um, uh, added bonus of getting candidates to run against like Larry Elder, who was a primary Republican in uh, California. Uh, he was uh, the, uh, the, the, the Trump-loving, uh, hate-spewing, COVID-enabling radio talk show host. He certainly played a role. Uh, in the in the huge uh, Newsom victory. Look, I don't think this was totally preordained. I don't believe this stuff. There were just a couple bad polls. I talked to Democrats in early to mid-August. They were worried. They were worried about the enthusiasm. They were worried about the intensity. And as you say, uh, they really did gin up that base, and they turned out people. Yeah, it, it, I think I, uh, I read, uh, I think in Media Matters, Larry had been on Fox 54 times this year, maybe more than anybody else. So let's let, let's give Fox some credit for this big Democratic victory. They 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 promoted Larry Elden, and once of course people found out who he was, uh, the bottom sort of fell out, if you will. Uh, you know, I, I know Democratic consultant culture, and I, I know that they say that they they love they love to piss and moan about how, how tight this is going to be. I don't know if we can do it. Maybe we can, and then of course. Partisanship kicks in. They they have I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars, and they went in big. And they, and they said, well, look, I'm a genius now. And I I don't doubt this goes on, but I I I just know Democratic consultant culture, and you never get one to admit, hey, we're ahead in this thing. We should win it. Well, they, I think they just, they just don't do that. I think that's normally true, but uh, I think this I I don't think that was the dominant theme here. I think in back in early August. Showed Newsom ahead in the polls, but it all showed, showed all the intensity was with Republicans. And in a recall, this was not, an, uh, this was not, Gavin Newsom's name wasn't on, on, on the ballot, you know, Ga Gavin Newsom versus Larry Elder. It was, do you recall or not? There's a little bias there towards the negative. So I, I don't think the worries were totally unjustified. And then I think the Newsom people did a very good job of, uh, of turning it into a rout. I, I'm more... Not unjustified, but exaggerated. And I guarantee in every one of those polls, they had projective polling. This is, this is who was behind it, okay? And they effectively and correctly branded as a Republican recall. And once they did that, it was going to kick in. And I guarantee you they had that information in, in early August. I'm not saying that no, I, there I wasn't don't. something to it. I'm, just, I'm saying they exaggerated the threat. And Maybe. I did that. I'm I do it sure. all the time. Yeah. But I, I, I think the lesson is more important than the exaggeration, which was Trump. If you're a Democrat and you talk a lot about Trump, you tend to bring out more voters. And uh, I think that's an important message uh, to know. <clears throat> Let's turn to another huge story this week. Bob Woodward and Bob Costa 
come have come out with a new book. You know, you thought after everything else, after the, you know, Carol Lenig and Phil Rucker book and Mike Bender and so many others that, boy, it's going to be a real challenge for Woodward to come up with anything this time. He came up with something. Uh, Mark Milley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was so worried that in the final weeks that Trump might do something, wag the dog, declare war, drop a bomb, that he actually called his counterpart in China, who also, according to the reporting, was worried that there might be some kind of action to assure him there wouldn't be and to let him know he would inform him anything was going to happen. Man, that's a pretty big deal. It happened once before, 1974, in the closing days of Nixon, when the then defense secretary, Jim Sussinger, did the same thing. It's actually a, a debate in kind of, I would call it, high-end Trump scholarship. And our dear friend, Tim O'Brien, wrote a piece and said the only thing that Woodward got wrong about this is he wasn't any more crazy during the period from the election in November till January the 20th. There yeah. was not an exaggerated state of crisis. He was that crazy the whole time. And I, I texted a, a, a very high-end, a person with a Ph.D. in Trumpology, and said, where do you come down on this debate? And this person told me, and I'm not going to say this person's name because I, I just wouldn't do that without permission, but trust me, it's, it's a big name, said she comes down decidedly in O'Brien camp. I do, too. Yeah, there, there was no exaggerated sense of, sense of, of nuttiness. Yeah, he's crazy the whole time. No, I do too. I think the only difference was he he was he was even more threatened than usual because <clears throat> he was going to go out of office. Uh, he might go to jail, uh, and Lord knows what the crazy man would have done under those circumstances. I don't think he was any crazier. Just the circumstances were worse. But I, I, I probably General Milley was in some meetings where he saw behavior that he hadn't previously seen before. But I. I, I I think the other people would say that that was just normal for the day, but I, I don't know that. But I mean, I'm just saying that, you know, one of the things that, I mean, you're a writer, so you pay attention to this kind of stuff. One of the things that drives me crazy when you get on an airplane and the flight attendant comes and says, This is a very full flight. No, it can't be any more full than full. All right? There's no such, there's no such thing as a very full glass of water. And when you're that crazy, it, it's hard to be any crazier than he was. That, that's the point I'm making, and that, that's what Tim, yeah. point Tim was trying to make, too, I think. <clears throat> Not, no, no one <clears throat> doubts that any of this happened. Yeah, and there's no better expert, as you say, than Tim O'Brien. Right, uh, it, yeah. it, and I think that General Milley's, yeah, I'm, I'm sure his concerns, he felt them, and, and he felt like he had to do this, but he was, he was never going to nuke China or anything like that. It never going to happen. But well, he, he, he would certainly, like, talk about it. No, but he could have done some damage, James. I don't think it was a totally idle threat. And, uh, <clears throat> and I also, I think like Schlesinger in 1974, I think normally a Joint Chiefs or a Defense Secretary doing that would be unconscionable. But I think it was absolutely justified in this setting. And the Marco Rubios of the world are just trying to score cheap points. I, I'm sure that he felt that way. And I'm sure when he saw what he did, he said, I because he didn't have that kind of daily contact with Trump, all right? I, I, right. I, I don't blame him for what he did. I just, I, I think his fears were, were not going to happen, but I don't think he did think I would have, that's all I'm saying. He was never going to do anything like that. It, it, and if you, Michael Wolf, who, I'm sorry, he, he knows him 
you know, extremely well. And, and, the, and Michael Wolf's point is, he can't do anything. He's totally ineffective. He just sits there at Mar-a-Lago and rants and raves and screams. And, and look at the election lawyering, or if you want to call it, if you want to call these people's lawyers, look at their strategy. It was just, it was totally, and it was not just ineffective, it was comical. And, and all that, that, is, that, that's... All that is undeniably true. I just think in those final couple of weeks, uh, there was there was more peril than normal, and uh, I think in the in the interest of the nation, whether you were Jim Schlesinger in 1974, a reasonably comparable analogy, although Nixon was never as crazy as Trump, uh, or Mark Milley in uh, 2021, I'm glad they did what they did. Hey, James, the great historian and the founding of America and our early presence in those extraordinary times, Joe Ellis. He's just published, I think this is right, he can tell me if I'm off one or two, his 14th book on those times, The Cause, 1773 to 1783, The American Revolution and Its Discontents. It's rich with the tensions and the challenges of those formative years. First of all, Joe, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a fascinating book that just came out. And, and let me start with something that really I didn't expect to start with. I was reading uh, the debates on, that you capture so brilliantly on both sides of the Atlantic back then. And I was really struck by the parallels to modern America and Vietnam and Afghanistan. The world's greatest superpower then, Great Britain, believing military might and superior resources could easily overcome a ragtag munch in the colonies. Despite warnings from people like Governor General Gage and British politicians like Pitt and Edmund Burke that this would be a long, costly war and even as, if successful, would require an endless occupation. Sort of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I say that in the book, and it's the 13th. Yeah. I'm, I'm really prolific, but not quite as, oh. as much as you say. Uh, uh, I'm present. You'll get there, Joe. But I think that the way I put it in the book is that Americans are perhaps for the first time going to be able to understand and empathize with the dilemma that the British faced in what we call the American Revolution. Again, they called it, the British called it the American Rebellion, um, and the colonists called it the cause. Um, but that a newly arrived world power, uh, having just successfully uh, won the uh, French and Indian War and gained control of a third of a continent in North America, steps onto the stage convinced of its invincibility and its omniscience, and steps into a quagmire and a war that is both unwinnable and unnecessary. This should sound pretty familiar to Americans in the late 20th and early 21st century. Yeah, sure does. You know, um, interestingly, uh, as you write, Benjamin Franklin and some others suggested what I guess we'd call compromise. America would be independent, make its own decisions, but really remain in essence part of the empire. George III summarily rejected that. He was really a fool, Joe. <laughs> yeah, I know. You don't want to call the king a fool to his face, however. And um, I don't, No uh, worries today. <laughs> I mean, George III is, you know, if you, if you draw him up on a board before you, before the revolution, he sounds like a decent guy. He um, he's one of the few 
uh, British kings who actually is loyal to his wife. She's pregnant all the time. Um, her name is Charlotte. Charlottesville is named after her. And um, he's uh, broad-gauged. He's an amateur astronomer, gardener. And he he's the first Hanoverian monarch who actually speaks fluent English. Um, and he cares about his people. Um, one commentator, British commentator, said that George III is the only British king that actually cares about his subjects. But he commits, in my judgment, the biggest blunder in the history of British statecraft. And he is the ultimate reason why what should have happened, we should have evolved into the British Commonwealth over the course of the 19th century, doesn't happen. Um, uh, but um, uh, it takes a long time for the American colonists to come to terms with the fact that George III is their enemy because they want to try to make it seem like even though Parliament is out to get them and actually, as they say, enslave them, they have great faith in George III. And that's why the Declaration of Independence takes the format it does. Most of it is an indictment of George III. If you want to have a revolution, you've got to kill the king. And that's what Jefferson has to do as the prosecutor in that particular declaration and document. Well, you, you really captured General Washington, as you also did in an earlier book. And we revere him as the hero today, you know, which he was. But he faced a brutal task, lots of criticism you write about, not much support from the Continental Congress, bitter winner of Valley Forge, and continued insistence by some that it was the militias, not the Continental Army, that was going to win the war. Yeah. You know, 1977 to 1981 wasn't a very easy time for the great general. 17. I, I make the mistake I'm in sorry. the other direction now. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> but that's I'm okay. sorry. I, I live back there, so it's use, I'm useful. Uh, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I think that, it, it, believe it or not, I connect this in my own mind to the current refusal to vaccinate. Um, eight, 80 million Americans don't want to do it. Um, after 76, 1776, patriotism declines or recedes. Um, and if Washington had got what he wanted in the way of money and men, the war would have lasted one or two years. Demographically, we could have fielded an army of 80 to 100,000. Washington asked for 60,000. He never got more than 12 to 15,000. Um, states refused to, to uh, fill their levies and they refused to pay the taxes. It was in, in 1778, the Congress sent out requests for a total of $8 million to the states. $312,000 came back. To me, the real heroes that I come away with here are the ordinary soldiers in the Continental Army, especially those that served the duration. We'll never fully understand the difficulty of that war. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to revise your understanding of what war was like in the 18th century. The pictures that we get, the artistic depictions are romanticized and tamp down the seriousness. If there was photography then, if we still, if we had pictures of the war as we do of the Civil War, or if we had a Goya as an artist, 
you would understand this as a barbaric kind of war. Um, in fact, more Americans died per capita in the war for independence than in any war in American history save the Civil War. Wow. Um, well, I, I, Joe, tell me this. I want to turn it over to James. But in reading about Washington in your book and other things I read, this may be a reach. But I kind of think of him more like an Eisenhower, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, an inspirational leader who conveyed command surrounded by some brilliant people, Hamilton, Lafayette, mm -hmm. um, uh, but but more than a brilliant military strategist. Is that is that fair or not? Um, I think it's fair, although I'd, I'd do a caveat. And um, I think that Washington was a singular figure. There was a great disagreement within the various colonies, especially sectional disagreements, about what we were fighting for and how hard we should fight. There was only one person who embodied the cause. Whatever it was, it was Washington. Um, and without him, I, I mean, I think if they had destroyed the Continental Army, I think we would have just raised another army. But if they got Washington, they would have taken him back to London, hung him, quartered him, put his head on a spit, and that would have been it. And I think lost the lot. Washington is more crucial to our success in the war than Eisenhower's is to the success in, in World War II. Um, but I also think Eisenhower was a better general than Washington. Washington lost more battles than he won, by far. Um, what Washington understood, and it took him a while to understand this because he originally thought of war as in, in an honor-driven way, like a summons to duel. And if the British presented themselves, you had to answer the call and go, go forward. In the end, he realized he did not have to win the war. The British had to win the war. All he had to do was not lose it. That's a much easier task. Um, and, um, and once he realized that, that's the great, the other strategic insight that he had at the very beginning of the war, and the British don't do this, the war was going on in the midst of a huge smallpox epidemic. Over 150,000 people died. The first thing he did was um, to inoculate all members of the Continental Army. You had to spend two weeks in quarantine before you went there. So, like, I think that whenever I'm asked to rank presidents, the three big ones are always Washington, Lincoln, and FDR. Lincoln usually ends up first now. I always put Washington first. Lincoln saved the republic that Washington created. Um, and so, as leaders go, he's tough to beat. Um, and although I will also say that Eisenhower's farewell address is comparable and in some ways more profound than Washington's farewell address in terms of warning against the military industrial complex. Yeah. James. Yeah, James, get in here, James. I want to hear a, a fellow Southerner talk. <laughs> okay, here we go. So I'll make a, a quick point and get out. You know, if Lee would have understood Washington, he would have done better. He tried to win the Civil War, when in fact, uh, a tie with the Confederates would have won. And Washington understood that he would win, he would he'd win a tie. It's true, it's true. If, if, I, 
It's not clear what would have happened with a tie, but I hear what you're saying, James, and here's the way to put it. Most of the great generals in world history, in American history, are losers. Hannibal, Napoleon, uh, Robert E. Lee, the, the, the great Rommel. I mean, they're all, they're all losers. Washington is not tactically a great general, but he's a winner. Um, and um, it's interesting. Grant didn't lose much, but he, he well, tied some. But anyway, I, 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 I want to, so Professor, I want to talk to you because you've been involved in history forever. And it strikes me that history departments have become the new theology departments. Mm. Is people look at history almost as, as, as a pursuit of theology. And I want to talk specifically because I, I, I was sent a, a piece that you did uh, about the, the Professor uh, Hinton, Hilton at South Carolina in the whole 1619 project. Oh, yeah. And that, and I, this is something I do know something about because I always assign Adam Hoshiel's book on the British anti slavery movement. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the reason that we fought the British is because we were afraid that they would abolish slavery in the colonies is utterly asinine. That you, at, you, at the point James, of that let me, war, let me, let me stop you right there for a second, then you can go on. You are absolutely, you are absolutely right on that score. There is no question about that, and that's where there's a kind of overreaching on the part of people who believe their their historical views need to be driven by their own sense of social justice. Look, um, uh, I, I, I go up against them, and I mean, but that no, no, the Civil War was about slavery. No question. The American Revolution was not a war. In fact, the Americans are the ones who claimed that the British were plotting to enslave them. Um, And the values of the civil rights movement and of the liberal tradition are the values that are created in the spirit of 76. So I'm with you on this. Well, well, thank you. And and a lot of the inspiration for the British anti-slave trade movement came from Americans. I, I mean, we had a strong anti-slavery movement in this country, even at the time. You know, they were, it wasn't as strong as it was before the Civil War, but that, 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 that was not unknown in American society. Uh, it, well, actually, the, yeah, the, first, the first abolitionist society gets created in Philadelphia in 1776. It's uh, the Pennsylvania Abolitionist Society. And um, so... Uh, and the first wave of uh, emancipation occurs in the northern states at the end of the war and at the early right after the war. So that a lot of people standing on the cusp of history at that moment, including southern slave owners like Washington, Jefferson, um, Madison, Patrick Henry, they all acknowledged that slavery was incompatible with the values of the cause. And they thought that slavery was going to die a natural death. Um, and it didn't go that way. Um, uh, but back to your earlier point, James, I do think that um, theology is one way of putting it, but uh, the way I'd put it, too, is that there are no straight lines in nature, and anybody that goes back with a contemporary agenda, political agenda to the past and then finds exactly what he or she is looking for, you know that, you, you know, it's it's not true. Um, if you pay me a lot of money, it'd have to be a lot of money, James, 
uh, and you're an evangelical Christian, and you want me to prove that Thomas Jefferson is an evangelical Christian, you, I can do it. I have to, I have to uh, suppress 98% of the evidence, but I can do it. He used the word creator in the Declaration. He studied the Bible in 1801, 1802. Um, but Jefferson wasn't an evangelical Christian. He wasn't even a Christian. He was a deist. When he died, he didn't believe he was going anywhere except into the ground. But, uh, you, but the, when you look back, the past isn't history. History is what we select. And what you select will determine how, what conclusions you reach. And I think that our first obligation as historians is to avoid what I call the presentistic fallacy. Namely, uh, we've got to be able to see the 18th century in its own terms and only make judgments after we've recovered the past and those people's mentality on their own terms. Yeah, now I'll turn it over to Al and just make the, the point that in less than 100 years, Columbia University went from William Dunning to Eric Forner. That, that's a pretty that's a pretty big gap in historical interpretation. And <laughs> you, you're right. It, it, and you would think that there is enough racism in the history of this country that people don't have to make up any more than is. You, you could you could fill up the, you know, the the, the library of Congress with Man. books on how much actual racism there is in the country. We don't we don't need to we don't need to exaggerate it. it, it it's right there. And, yeah, let, Jim, you, tell me whether you agree with this. I've got a, a theory. It's, I call it the backlash theory. It starts at the end of the revolution, so it connects to what we're talking about right now. Once emancipation becomes a real possibility, the question becomes, what do we do with the freed slaves? The answer in the North is segregation. The answer in the Deep South is we have to send them elsewhere. So you get a backlash, a racial backlash. After the Civil War and Reconstruction, you get Jim Crow. After the passage of the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Act of 64, 65, you get the Southern strategy of the Republican Party. By the way, tell me whether I'm right on this, James. No Democratic candidate for president since 1965 has ever received a majority of the white vote. And then you elect, then you elect Barack Obama and you get Donald Trump. Um, it's the backlash phenomena, and it's because there's a there's a layer of racism beneath the surface of American society that can always be called out. And we should, instead of expecting when Obama was elected that we'd be entering post-racial America, we should have expected something quite opposite. And the closer we get to 2045, which is when the white population is due to become a statistical minority, the more vulnerable we are going to be to demagogues willing to play the race card. And I think we should expect that. The only thing I would take issue with that you said is that it's beneath the surface. It, it, it uh -huh. penetrates the surface more often than not. And back to Albert, our dear friend and dear friend of this show, Thomas Etzel had a good piece in the New York Times today linking the anti-abortion movement and race. It, it's really worth a read, and, it, it, and it's very yeah. academically grounded. Albert? Yeah, I would also, Joe, the only thing I would take slight issue with is, you know, we ain't going to have to wait to 2045. 
I mean, I don't mean to say that. No, I know. But I think you, that to say, you know, sometimes when I'm talking in liberal cocktail parties, that you can't talk about that. Almost the act of talking about racism makes you makes people think you're endorsing it. Well, you're not. But you got to know what you're up against. Okay, and um, and we're up against a very um, long-standing racial problem. The 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 most positive way I can put it, though, is if you looked at the last, the most recent census, there's no question we're a multiracial, multicultural society. And just think of this. Tell me whether you had the same thought that I did. When I watched the American Olympic team walk into the Tokyo Stadium, I said, that's the only multiracial team in the world. And that's yeah. means, that means we're going to win. Certainly the most. There's no question. Yeah. Joe, let me let me take you back on uh, to your book, though, and the issue of slavery. I mean, you guys are absolutely right. The war war was not fought over uh, <clears throat> over preserving slavery. But there 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 was this just, you know, incredible gap between those marvelous egalitarian principles uh, that were outlined and slavery. I mean, even Washington, after the war, wanted the British to return and he freed slaves to Mount Vernon. Mm. Uh, and, he, you know, equally offensive in some ways was the way, was the effect it had on Native Americans. Look, what you write about is one of the great achievements, if not the greatest of all, of all person kind, as we say politically correct now. But, um, but boy, those stains were pretty big. Absolutely. And I don't uh, cover them up here. And um, You sure don't. Uh, I mean, two things are true. The revolutionary generation, the founding generation, is the most creative and, uh, and the greatest leaders in the history of the United States. Alfred Lord Whitehead once said there were only two moments in Western history that he knew of when the political elite of an emerging nation behaved about as well as anyone could reasonably expect. One was Rome under Caesar Augustus and the other was the United States under the founders. They did all kinds of things that we could call triumphs, and I'll list them for you if you want, but that there are two tragedies. One is the failure to reach a just accommodation with the Native American population, and the other is the failure either to end slavery or put it on the road to extinction. The question that we need to argue about and debate isn't whether those are tragedies, because they are. It's whether they were Greek tragedies or Shakespearean tragedies. A Greek tragedy means it couldn't have turned out any other way, no matter what kind of leadership we had. A Shakespearean tragedy means that it was a matter of agency and leadership could have moved it in the other direction. I think slavery fits the Shakespearean model. I think there was a shot. Um, there's a phrase that a great historian at Yale, David Brian Davis, created, it's an awkward phrase, it's called the perishability of revolutionary time. For as long as this generation is in power, the memory of 76 and the sacrifice it entailed and what the values were is alive. And once, you, once that generation passes or is no longer in, in, in office, it fades. Um, uh, and I think there was a shot in the 70s and 80s to end it. And 1770. 1770. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, let me try one more thing before turning back to James. And, and you really do capture this. Um, as the war was starting to end, the cause, the title of your book, 
Washington and others realized that the, there was a much greater challenge ahead. How to, not just how to create a nation, but what kind of a nation would it be? A strong central government, not just a confederation of states. Boy, that, that, that has haunted us for a long time. Uh, I think Hamilton and Washington were right, but there was real resistance. More than the resistance, they were a very small minority. Yeah. That the overwhelming opinion at the end of the war was we should revert back to the sovereignty of each, each state, that we'd come together provisionally to win the war, and now that the war was won, um, we'll go back to our... And, and the, remember that an ordinary American citizen was born, lived out his or her life, and died within a three-day horse ride. They didn't think nationally or continentally. They thought locally. They didn't trust representatives that they didn't know personally. Um, and so Pluribus is winning out over Unum, and the United States as a term is a plural noun. It's not the United States is, the United States are. Another way to put it is in 1860-61, the Confederacy has a has a major constitutional point, namely that at the that Lincoln's sentence, first sentence in the greatest speech in American history, is historically incorrect. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth in this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought forth a confederation of sovereign states, um, and and that regarded all domestic policy as a as a function of the states. Um, which is one reason it's going to be very hard to end slavery. James Carville. Do, do, do you agree with Professor Wilentz, who says that they intentionally didn't make slavery a part of the Constitution, which is, seems mm. to be a debate back back and forth? Yeah, I hear. I know Sean very well, and um, I I agree with him in this sense that. What he's reflecting is Lincoln's view, in some ways, of what the founders intended. And, but it's hard to make the case that they did think that the slaves were property when, uh, in the, during the Constitutional Convention, they're recognized as property. Um, uh, I will say, I'm not sure Sean makes this point, but it supports his, call, his case a little bit. In the phrase of the Declaration that's so famous, what is it? The trilogy is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The original trilogy from Locke is life, liberty, and property. Jefferson changes it because he knows that if you leave property in, slave owners will claim that they have a right to property and therefore to slavery. Um, if, the, if we went into battle, I would be on Walensis' side in this one, but I'd, I'd short, I would have some caveats into the way, uh, some of the ways that it's presented in his book. Right. So uh, there's been reported, would you agree or disagree with this statement, the founders were probably the least religious generation of leaders America has had. Oh, wow. I never thought about that. I mean... Um, um, I think they're the first, though Gary says, yeah, he, he's a knowledgeable man. And, um, 
himself himself once a Jesuit, by the way. And um, uh, uh, I think that it's a, it's a defensible position. They're the first generation to come of age during the Enlightenment uh, when traditional Christian notions of the hereafter are coming under scrutiny and question. Ab, um, Jefferson and Adams argue about this or talk about it in their correspondence, and it's interesting. Um, uh, Adams says, uh, you should like this, James. He says, if it can ever be shown conclusively that there is no hereafter, my advice to every man, woman, and child on the planet is to take opium. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, uh, I don't, I think Washington didn't believe he was going anywhere other than into the ground. I think Jefferson didn't. Adams remains a Unitarian at the end. Um, uh, but I, I, I don't know. You, they, uh, they are not going to, as a group, fit into what uh, an evangelical uh, constituency regard as their fellas. Um, um, and I might say, too, that the evangelicals in the 18th century, the um, Methodists, Baptists, and I don't know what they're called evangelicals then, the, the, the Quakers, they are the cutting edge of the anti-slavery movement. The evangelicals are radicals rather than conservatives in the late 18th century. Yeah, they could, you know, Roger Williams was very, you know, was very enlightened guy. Yes, he was. But he's, he's now James, he's 150 years earlier. I know, I know, he's before it, but... They, they, well, you know, up, 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 in, up, in my, up in my state, in, in my state of Massachusetts, they they refused to buy, to build good roads that would lead you down to New Rhode Island from Boston for 150 years because... Rhode Island's a place where you put crazy people like Roger Williams and um, <laughs> and, uh, and witches and other people like that. Right, right. My eldest son went to Brown, and it took me forever to get there. <laughs> well, I think my oldest daughter, my wife and I, think our oldest daughter was conceived in Salem. <laughs> as best as we can triangulate it. <laughs> Jay, I, you know, I'll tell you, Joe, this is really, it's, it's a wonderful book, uh, The Cause, 1773-1783. Um, uh, you know, in addition to the great history, Joe, there are wonderful little vignettes. Uh, Billy Lee, uh, uh, General Washington's black aide de right. camp. Uh, Joseph Martin, who published his memoir, what, 50 years right. uh, after the war. Carrie Green, the elegant woman who comforted disabled troops. I mean, it's just, you, you, you capture those people so yeah, you, nicely. You, know, you can't write full biographies of those people because not enough sources. But I think Katie Green is the Cleopatra of the American Revolution. God knows yeah. how many guys she slept with at Valley Forge. But... Um, um, well, help us get through the winter, Joe. <laughs> she's, she's, and um, uh, there's one guy called Harry Washington that I profile too. And yeah, that um, he's a Mount Vernon slave who escapes. Uh, again, the 1619 historians think that they're all trying to to start a slave insurrection. They're not. They're just trying to escape. And um, he gets away, and eventually ends up being sent up to Nova Scotia, and eventually. Uh, ends up back in Africa, in Sierra Leone, where he started, and um, his is a fascinating story. It, it, he, you know, he, it's it's and it's one of the profiles I put in there as a, pe- a person who's largely forgotten. Uh, Washington is is fighting the British in order to secure American liberty, 
Harry joins the British because he thinks it's his best chance for liberty and freedom, which is true. And um, it, and those both of those things are true. And if, you, if you're incapable of irony and paradox, you shouldn't be looking at history. Well, uh, you, you certainly get it in the cause. Uh, 1773 to 1783, I got my century right, at least this time, Joe, by Joseph Ellis, the great historian uh, of those formative years. Joe, thank you so much. You were just a great guest. I think we ought to go on a program. I think we should let me in the program because I think that we three guys have one really basic thing in common. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. No, you don't. Because we're all married to women smarter than us. That's what I thought you'd say, and boy, did you nail it. <laughs> You're right there. You're right there. You know, well, I, oh, I profess it was just such an honor to, 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 hey. to be able to interview you. And Hey, Joe, Joe, I want to tell you something, though. I, I am, I am going to prove prescient because there will be a 14th book. And when it is, we want to have you on this podcast. God willing, we're still around, Okay. It's a deal, man. Thanks so much. It's a deal. Thank you, Joe Ellis. Thank you so much. Hey, get fired up for the fall and start turning your goals into reality by taking action and learning the things you need to up your game by joining us and using Blinkist. Blinkist takes top nonfiction books and gives you the key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks, you can learn from them in just 15 minutes. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or dive into national affairs with titles like Black Flags, The Rise of ISIS by Joby Warwick, and The Soul of America by John Meacham. They blink thousands of titles in 27 categories, and if you like podcasts, and you all do, they blink those too with shortcasts. And it's all in one app, right in your pocket, so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. James, you're a fan. I am a huge fan, and, and this is a, a design thing for people like me who have ADHD or whatever. But it's more than that. It's really for people who are curious. And curious people have an entire range of interests, all right? And, and I, I think a, a lot of people in a lot of our audiences like that. They don't want, it's not necessarily to be the best Civil War historian there is, but the idea is to know more than you knew before. And boy, this is a tool that will give you a, 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 lot, a lot of reward for a, a limited investment in both money and time. And the, and the more you, you know, the, the wider and more diverse your knowledge base is, I, I think the more successful and the better and happier person you're gonna be. Yeah, I really believe that. And this is about as good a device to do that as, as anybody's ever come up with. Well, it is, and it has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash warroom to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash warroom. You get 25% off and a seven-day free trial Blinkist.com slash warroom, or look for the link in our show notes. All right, once again, James, a bunch of really good listener questions. John, uh, actually, we're going to start with Clay in Los Angeles. 
And he says, this is right down your alley. For the first time in 20 years, Americans know the truth about the Afghanistan war. It's done, and we know the truth because Joe Biden did what not one of his critics ever have. He took responsibility. Those people who created this horrendous disaster should be hiding under rocks, afraid of court martials, trials, tar and feathers. Instead, they're on TV. This surely is a sign of a deep cancer in our country. What, James, can we do about it? It, it, Well, first of all, the, the, the government knew, the people that are criticizing this, their job, the, 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 uh, the guy Bender, blind, what's the guy's name from the Post that wrote a book that exposed this whole thing? Craig Whitlock. Oh, sorry, Whitlock. I'm sorry, I got him confused yeah. with one or the other. That's okay. I got my centuries wrong with Joe Ellis. <laughs> right. It, 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 it's right in front of you. And I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Exactly nothing. Because ev- everybody had their hands on this. Everybody lied about it. Everybody looks like shit, except for when Biden said, pull the hell out. And and we know that. And if you think that anybody is going to risk digging in and finding out how many people were lying to us and knew they were lying and continued to do it the same way, that's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But what's going to happen is, is people are going to say, it's time to move on. It's time to turn the page. You know, if, if we would have executed this withdrawal, it would have been better planning. It would have been much better. It's going to be the same old bullshit. And I hate to say that to, to my friend in Los Angeles, but I, I, I think this gentleman is smart enough to know what the truth is. And the truth is we were lied to, and so many people lied to us, and so many people did a terrible job from congressional committees to, to, to large media entities to, to NGOs, to foundations, to the military, to everybody, it, it's, it's going to all get swept under the rug and we're all going to blame it on the withdrawal. And, and I, I see that coming. I'm, I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised. You know, it, it's just what it is. You know, maybe somebody can do something about this, but I don't think anybody's going to do it because what did Jack Nicholson say? You, you say you want the truth. You don't want the truth because you can't handle the truth. You have fed a bunch of lies for, for 10, 15 years, and people went along with it. And that's just what happened. Yep. Um, I'm going to combine uh, the second questions because they're, they're, they're kind of related. John in Manchester, UK, uh, says, Why do Republicans act as though they're helpless victims, unable to reform their primary system, which produces extreme candidates? And then Tina and Gunnar in Sweden as do you believe there's a breaking point in the coming years where the GO becomes, GOP becomes so unpopular that no amount of gerrymandering or voter suppression can help, their retain, help them retain power? First of all, John, uh, it's not the primary system. Uh, Larry Elder ran away. He was a right-wing nut. He ran away with that second vote in California. If the initial uh, tests were not Iowa and New Hampshire but were California and Wisconsin, I don't think it would be a lot different. That's just where the party, the Trump party is now. To Tina and Gunnar, um, I, I think the most important issue in the next two months, maybe, I really think more important even than the big reconciliation bill, is whether the Senate, led by Joe Manchin, will create a carve-out for a voting, voting rights bill which will prevent some of the suppression that states like Georgia are planning 
that frankly, I don't think you can overcome because they can just run in and take over from counties. So that's a critical issue. If that happens, I think it's going to be a real setback to the voting to the vote suppressors. They'll still be there, but that's a really critical thing to watch. And our good friend Fred Wertheimer has been in the forefront, and I think he thinks uh, you know they got a they got a real shot now. Well, I, I don't you know that Hyde set up could set it up any way he want to. They would have nominated Trump, and and if he runs right, right now, there's no one that, that even seriously doubts. I don't you you could you couldn't derig it. He, he, this is a reflection, of, Trump is a reflection of what actual Republican voters want and overwhelmingly want. So I, 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 don't, I don't think there's a, a, a flaw in the way they select their candidates. I, I would certainly argue that there's a flaw, in, a major flaw in the candidates that they select, but that, I, I don't think that's the issue. And, you know, if you have, if we keep chipping away, at, at, at this democracy, and they and they succeed, and the House doesn't pass this, the Senate doesn't pass this legislation on this HB one or SB one, or the, I can't get much one. I think they're both about the same. Then people are going to give up. They're just going to give up, right. and you know, and you come in, and the, the legislature overturns an election, which they have the power to do, and which they they they, they will do in a, in a nanosecond to retain power. You know, when you have a, a, a issue like Roe that's over 70 percent supported by the American public and you have a, a hijacked court, uh, you know, people are there's a lot of kerosene out there and people need to stop playing with matches. But they're going to keep playing with matches. And I, I, I fear the result is not going to be good. Well, you've led us into the next question. Again, I'm going to combine two. First is from Frank in Broward County, who, by the way, notes that he loves Magic Spoon. So do we, Frank. But he, he says on abortion, it should be about Roe and only Roe. How do you keep getting this point across to weak-kneed Democrats? And Colonel, uh, there's a, a retired Air Force Colonel, Kurt, who's who lives, living now in Budapest, Hungary, and he says that he thinks the Texas abortion bill is going to be a disaster for Republicans that the bans were an abstraction, but now those suburban moms who vote Republican kiss them goodbye, and anyone with a teenage daughter kiss them goodbye. What do you hacks think? I think I think the gentleman from Broward County is 100% right. It's all you should talk about. People are conflicted on abortion. They have different views, they're not sure. They're not conflicted at all on Roe. That, that, and, and that is brilliant. To the colonel, uh, in Hungary, I, you know, I, I think it, this is consistent. What he's saying is consistent with a shared belief that you and I have, is that the mover on this debate is the loser, and boy, are they clearly the loser here. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I really recommend Tom Etzel's piece in the Times this morning about how they co-opted, you know, the the racist shit the pro-life people did. It, 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 it's illuminating and it's convincing. Yeah, well, no, everything Tom does is good, and I, and I certainly I will get that. I haven't read it yet, James, but I'm going to write after this program. Um, the next question is from Michael in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He said, why aren't Biden and the Congress moving faster to appoint civil rights, public defenders, ACLU-type lawyers to district and appellate court courts in areas of the country that really need them, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi? So far, his appointments have mostly been the more liberal courts. Let me tell you, uh, first of all, Michael, I think most of his appointments, have, including this area, have been really good. 
Here's a problem uh, that I think is slowing up the appointments, whether it's to courts or whether it's ambassadors. They are so intent on diversity, which I think is a good thing, that they are waiting until they get a package of diversity, of diverse candidates, before they nominate anyone. I think that's a mistake. I am all for the diversity, but I think for important posts, if you need people, if you need good lawyers uh, down there in Mississippi and in Texas and good and good judges, try to get them there as quickly as you can and then take care of the diversity later. Yeah, the, the, the appointment process has not gone well. I mean, I, I, the judges, but I mean, just across the federal yeah. government. And you, 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 you should be... You should promote diversity. You should be paralyzed by it. And, and I think there's a good case to be made that, that they're utterly paralyzed by this. And, and that's not good for anybody. Including those diverse candidates who are going to be ultimately appointed. Right. No question. Uh, all right, James, this again is, this is your alley. Michael in Parkside, Pennsylvania. He's a 23-year-old Philadelphia public school teacher running for his, in his local borough council. Town's small, about 2,000 people, and very closely divided. Michael's running as a Democrat with a message of bringing people together and working with each other to get things done. This is a borough city, a borough council job. He says his question is, how do I stick to my message that I strongly believe in while also keeping some of the more progressive Democrats on my side? Well, first of all, your message is is eighty percent there, but but and you didn't say this, and maybe you do. What is it you want to get done? Just the idea of saying, "Elect me, I'll get things done. I'll I'll reach across the aisle. I'll bring this together." You got to have a purpose in your message. Maybe it's to open a park. Maybe it's for a healthcare clinic in the bar. But I don't know, and I. Certainly, you'd be better acquainted with that. But but from what your message is to us, you need to to complete the circle and say, this is to what end we're doing this. And, you know, sometimes you, you have to, like, sit down and tell the more progressive people that, look, I'm, I'm the option. I'm always open to you. It, it, you know, and, and this election is a choice. And, and what would you rather have, somebody that's 76 with you 76% of the time or somebody's with you 7.6% of the time. And, and you know, you got it too. It's a small, it's a 2000 people. You, you, you can reach out. You can, you can tell these people that, you know, many of the objectives that you want, I want, and you have to nurture them and you have to bring them along. And it, frankly, you got to suck up to them because you need their votes and you need their support. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, David, in Madison, Georgia, asked, am I correct to understand the filibuster rule can be eliminated or altered by a simple majority of the Senate? If Democrats eliminate or alter the rule now, can Republicans reverse laws enacted by the Democrats if they gain a majority? Yes, yes, yes to all. Uh, Mitch McConnell uh, changed the filibuster rule four years ago for Supreme Court justices. Harry Reid did it several years before that. But David, let me tell you this, the filibuster rule as in this Congress is not going to be changed, the overall filibuster rule. The question is whether they can be you know, isolated instance, particularly the Voting Rights Act, where you carve out an exception. There's also a lot of precedent for that. Uh, and uh, I, as I said a few minutes ago, I am, I am cautiously optimistic that the Senate will do that in the next two months. Yeah, I, I, there's nothing you said that I 
that I remotely disagree with. I, 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 I probably, you know, I, I think you're right on the last point, but it, it doesn't happen until it happens. Right. But they well, can do whatever they want. There's no yeah. thing is not written anywhere. Just, you know, a, a made up rule. Yeah. yeah, no question. James, the final question. This is a good way uh, to close a show that, that uh, included the great uh, historian, the Revolutionary War historian, Joe Ellis, but, but with, with, a, with a different war. This is Debbie in Sudbury who says, I have a question for you. No one's ever been able to give me the answer. Why have the losers of the American Civil War and the supporters of, of, of that had such a loud voice in the state of affairs in America? To my knowledge, this is not true in any other civil war. It sometimes seems the reverse should be true. All right, uh, you got a week? I, I, what they did is, and the person most responsible for this was actually Jubal Early. He was a cavalry commander. He got slaughtered about 17 miles from where I am right now. And, you know, when it was over, he invented this whole lost cause myth, you know, that, that Grant was a butcher and Lee was a sainted hero and Longstreet didn't follow orders at Gettysburg. And it took hold. And, the Southern Historical Society did it. By the way, Columbia, the Ivy League got behind this. And it, it gave people a, a belief system uh, that, that and, and it had a narrative that they pushed. And, and you would be surprised how many intelligent people actually believed that. Now, you know, thank God that the, the, the screw of history is turning and most serious people think these people are utterly ridiculous and it was all a way to keep black people suppressed, which I 100% agree with. But there was a real flaw in, in, in our educational system, how we taught the Civil War. And by the way, slavery didn't have to do with it. It was a genteel society. The slaves were happy. They, they really... They, war between just, the states. You know, right. Pushing people north, the war between right. the states. But, right. but it, was, it was a destructive narrative that took hold and they just promoted it with a lot more vigor than, than the people who had the correct narrative. But I, I, I will say that it's gotten much better here. And a lot of credit goes to Professor Eric Foreman, who I talked about earlier in the show, who's an eminent historian of Reconstruction at, at Columbia now. And, it was, and a lot of it goes to, I, I think, our friend Ron Chernow, who we had on here, I, I think the Grant book, and there have been a, many great Grant books before Ron's, but I think his really brought home. His was a seminal one. You know, how, yeah. how erroneous and, and silly all this crap is. Yeah. James, I would add just one thing to that. I agree with everything. Uh, I was born in Virginia, but I grew up in Pennsylvania, and I went every summer, I'd go for a month usually to Virginia. And in Pennsylvania, this was in the 50s, uh, hardly anyone talked about the Civil War. Uh, you know, when you were a kid, if you heard about any wars, World War II. In Virginia, it dominated conversations. It dominated, there, were, there was, I think, one monument in the little town of Orange to World War II veterans. There were monuments all over the place to Civil War um, veterans uh, and the cause. It, uh, it, it, it really became the passion was all on that duplicitous, deceitful side. And uh, it took a long while, as you say, to overcome that. Yeah, but a lot of the war was fought in Virginia, too. So, you know, I mean, stories come down. I mean, your grandmother was not all that, you know, my great-grandfather was a soldier in the Civil War. He was on the Union side. But, but 
so that has a lot to do with it. And then, you know, the Southern Historical Society was in Richmond. And, of course, there's a good case to be made that Virginia and Lee sopped up all the troops and that the war in the West was equally, if not more important, than the, the war in Virginia. Well, I think that's a good point. But I also grew up not far from Gettysburg, which is a pretty... Pretty, pretty right. uh, So I, I, I do yeah, think it was, it's, it's, it's a losing side to some extent. And they set up organizations, United Daughters of the Confederacy and, and, uh, and other right. things. And they it just wasn't it, something. Right. People in, at least in my part of Pennsylvania, and I suspect in most of the, uh, the northern states, it just wasn't an issue people talked about a lot. And, uh, right. and, and the, main, the main line by miles might be relatively close to Gettysburg, but culturally it's a long way away. Oh, but you would go to Gettysburg. I mean, you know, that, that yeah, was the yeah, one sure, exception sure, to it. You know, yeah. look at you, you had all the battles, you know, fought in Chancellorsville and Fredericksburg and Coal Harbor and Spotsylvania and the wilderness and, you know, the Valley Campaign. I mean, you know, Malvern Hill, I mean, there's just one fucking battle. Right down the road. Right down the road. Right down the the road. You know, but hardly a place, you know, in Virginia that wasn't touched about all right, keep those keep those good questions coming in. I always apologize for not getting to all of them. They're all good. And some that we didn't get to this week, we'll get to next week. And now we want to tell you about a delicious meal service that's been a big hit at our dining tables. With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes and it's delivered right to your door. At HelloFresh, the fall harvest is officially on, so you can count on the classics like pumpkin cinnamon rolls, friends giving ready sides, and fresh high-quality ingredients that travel from the farm to your front door in less than a week. So skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. Thanks to HelloFresh, eating healthier, has never been easier. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items, 50 to choose from every week, from vegetarian and the calorie smart to extra special gourmet options. HelloFresh also gives you the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes. And you can change your delivery day, food choices if you want to on delivery day and plan the size or skip a week whenever you need to. Your whole family is into this, right, James? Yeah, it, it, what I like about it is it, it's bigger than any restaurant menu. And the other thing that you know, and you, particularly when you get our age, you, you want to kind of know what you're putting in your body. And they tell you exactly what it is. You go to a restaurant, and you know, you, you guess and you have no idea. And, you know, the, I, I think it's, a, yeah, I grew up believing that like fresh food was essential. You know, my mother was like that. And the idea that you're able to get this at your doorstep or something I never envisioned in my life is, is just a remarkable product. And, and I, the stuff is, and, and, and it has, it, it really tastes good. It's not, don't think of what you used to think of the old TV dinners, anything like that. I mean, this is well prepared. Uh, when it gets to you, it, it takes minimum effort on your part, you know, when the product arrives. And you, you could you got a, any number of choices, and you know exactly what's in them. It's a, just it's a terrific product. It is the joy of home cooking and the best HelloFresh meals. Eat better with HelloFresh today. Go to HelloFresh.com/slash/warroom14 and use code 
War Room 14. That's all one word for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. For America's number one meal kit, remember, go to HelloFresh.com slash War Room 14 and use code War Room 14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. We also include the link in our show notes. Hey, now for the outrage of the week. James, you know, 20 years after 9-11, there are still a few unanswered questions. Foremost, what role did Saudi Arabian officials play in assisting the terrorist hijackers? 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudis. Finally this week uh, was released a 2016 FBI report on the hijackers and any assistance they got, which the Trump administration had refused to release. Now, the 9-11 Commission said there was no evidence the Saudi government financed or supplied logistical support for these terrorists. But the latest FBI report indicates there were Saudi officials or officials and or those with ties to top figures in the kingdom who were in contact with some of the hijackers. I don't know what the facts are. None of us do right now. But 9-11 families have brought a suit against the Saudis. And now all those FBI and other information classified I think incorrectly by the Trump administration needs to come out and be released. Yeah, I I, I think I read about Mo Short that, that some of these guys were get, receiving money from people who worked in the Saudi embassy in Washington. They were. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you that they did it directly to the Saudi government. They were certainly part of the Saudi government. Mm. So the, my, my outrage is this, is that the policy of the Biden administration is almost a carbon copy of the of the policy of Fox News. And of course, everybody at Fox News is vaccinated because they have to be. If they're not, they'll lose their job. Yet, they promote this nonsense. And the really stupid people are the local right-wing talk radio hosts. This has turned in to be the the most dangerous profession in America. They dive at at a greater rate than like crab fishermen in the wintertime in Alaska. And there is a, a, a real level of cynicism it takes to criticize something when you, the thing that you're criticizing, you're doing exactly yourself. And it is, the, the hypocrisy of this entire thing is stunning. You cannot work at Fox unless you're vaccinated. It, it, it is, you want to call it a requirement or you want to call it a mandate. And in the nonsense that they promote of uh, this rapper saying uh, her cousin in Trinidad knew a guy that had a disease called architis, which is called inflamed testicles, which is a a result of the vaccine, and they're trying to get him on Fox News. It's just utterly ridiculous. It's hypocritical. It's stupid. It's immoral. It's anything else you can think of. Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Um, But uh, look at California, Florida. I think the people are smarter than those right-wing propagandists. Well, they're dropping like flies right now. Right. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsors, Blinkist and HelloFresh. 
We really thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.